This morning's scripture reading is from the book of John, chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. What a wonderful time this morning in worship. So good to see all of you and see some faces that have returned from the holiday break and others of you who might be visiting. We're just glad you're here. My name's Greg Simsrot, and I'm one of the elders here at uh, Bureau Bible Fellowship. And what an honor to bring the word to you today. And uh, I hope you had a great uh, holiday you know, break and uh, had a great Christmas and a happy new year. And now let's get into the new year. Amen? Let's make it happen. And uh, the only way I know to do that is by turning to the Word of God and letting the Holy Spirit enlighten our hearts so that we can live life to the fullest. That's what I desire in 2023. I hope you desire the same. So take your Bible, if you will, and if you'd like, you can go ahead and you can turn to Psalm 51 and then also put a finger in Romans 5.12. That's where we'll begin. We, be, we begin a new series today, and uh, it's just a wonderful series. Uh, the, the series itself is answering tough questions, but we want to find our answers from the Word of the living God. Some of you even maybe right now are going, whoa, okay, whoa, 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 whoa. From the Word of God, we're going to find the answers for life. You've been taught in the school system, you've been taught by others, that the Bible is not a, a, a book, a sacred writing that you can count on. And so next week, not actually not next week because we'll be at our missions convention, the following week we will actually do a message on the sanctity of human life. But the week after that, so at like the 29th of January, <laughs> We're going to look at, is the Bible reliable? Uh, I almost wanted to bring that message first, but I thought, no, let's hold. Because this message fits, dovetails beautifully into next weekend's missions weekend. And boy, am I excited about that. By the way, speaking of sanctity of human life, uh, 
let me just bring some clarification if you didn't understand. Uh, if you would like to participate on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday in the afternoon walk for life, you want to see Galen, and Galen Clor is sitting, where are you Galen? Shake your hand, there he is, he's sitting back here in the back, but stand Galen if you can, I, I know, uh, there's Galen. I, I think it's important that when we say go see Galen, a lot of you are like, okay, who's Galen? Uh, I'll tell you, I'll give you a quick reference point. Galen's the guy that passes out the cushions that you're sitting on back in the back every Sunday. So, but see Galen if you'd like to participate, okay? And, uh, and then we, we, we will also do two more messages, uh, probably one or two more in, uh, in February, uh, messages on answering tough questions. But today... Uh, we're going to deal with how can a loving God send people to hell? Has anyone ever asked you that question? Have you ever wondered the answer to that question? Well, as we begin this new series, our aim is to address difficult questions that the world and even some Christians struggle to answer. You may ask, why are we taking time on Sunday morning to address tough questions from a biblical perspective? Shouldn't we be doing a verse-by-verse study of the Word, which we always do? Uh, I will tell you why we're doing this series. Because I recently came upon a survey put out by Legionnaire Ministries and Lifeway Research. It was conducted last year. It's a fresh survey. Chris Larson, the president of and CEO of Legionnaire Ministries, had to say this about the state of theology in America today. Quote, this survey shows that people inside the church need clear Bible teaching just as much as those outside the church. The survey actually revealed that church people evangelistic people, evangelicals, almost come in identical in their belief system as people of the world who are secular, who do not believe in God, or their picture of God is very skewed, or even some people who are skeptic or are, are uh, agnostic. The church is in trouble. And so we do need verse-by-verse teaching, but we also need to address direct questions that oftentimes stump most Christians when they hear it. I want to help you. I want to clear up for those of you who yourselves are wondering why a loving God would send people to hell. But I also want to give you some understanding from the Word of God so that when you hear that question being thrown out there, you can give a biblical worldview answer, a true answer, okay? For example, let me give you some of the things in there in this, in this survey. When God created the world, everything he made was good. Would you agree? Yet, through Adam's sin, Adam's rebellion, Adam and Eve, in the garden, humankind became corrupted, The Bible teaches the concept of original sin, which means that since the fall of man, every human being inherits a sin nature. From the time of their conception, you enter into this world in sin. 
Now, you have your finger at Psalm 51. Let's look at verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. Is that clear enough? Look, okay, let's make it more clear. And in sin did my mother conceive me. So David, the greatest king of Israel, is saying, he's admitting, he's, he's, he is speaking almost like a prophet, and he's saying, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now turn to that Romans 5.12 passage that you have your finger in. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because, why? What does it say? All men have sinned. Everybody has sinned. We all suffer under original sin. Every human being has inherited a sin nature from the time of conception. This is what the Bible teaches. We're not sinners because we sin. Listen, you're not a sinner because you sin. You're a sinner, or you're, you sin because you're a sinner. You were a sinner from the beginning. I'm going to tell you what the most hated doctrine is on this earth today. The absolute, if, from the world's view, the most hated doctrine in the Bible, in Christianity, is depravity of man. That man is depraved, even from the womb. He, he's lost. He's not good enough to stand before a holy God. Total depravity. No man of his own will find God. God has to come seeking him. The Holy Spirit has to enlighten him. To be able to seek God. This is foundational in the word of God. Okay? After saying all that, now hear the response to the statement by Americans last year. What statement? That everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. Listen to this now. 71% of Americans agreed with that statement. 71% believe that they're born innocent. Okay? Uh, shouldn't be a surprise. They're secularist. They, they're without God. They live in a self-determined world. I do what I want. I am God. But let me take you to the next part of the same survey conducted last year. Here it is. What about evangelical America? Those in America who claim to be Christian. Okay, here is the response. 65% agreed that they were born innocent. What was the world? 71%. In the church, 65%. Over two-thirds of Christians believe they were born innocent. How in the world did they come to that conclusion if they have the word of God? Well, there could be a lot of answers to that. 
One could be that the church they're attending doesn't spend enough time teaching the Word of God and leaving people to come to their own false conclusion. Another answer is that they've become inculcated by a secular world. Another reason could be down deep inside, they have never come to a point of surrender to God. They're still in control. And to make them feel better, they have to believe that they're born innocent. In fact, how can you do it your way if you don't have innocence inside of you? So this is very, very, uh, only 32% of evangelicals disagreed with the statement, everyone is born innocent of the, in the eyes of God. Does that not shock you? That shocked me. If you want to look at this, the survey, by the way, just go to Legionnaire Ministries. That's a ministry that, that uh, R.C. Sproul founded. And you can go in and just put in uh, state the, the state of theology. It's a survey. They conduct that survey, I think it might be yearly, it might be every other year. Okay? So the reality is, after you read that survey and think about the evangelical church not believing that they are born in sin, the next thing that should come out of your mouth is, Houston, we have a problem. And this is why we're in the series that we're in right now. Let me give you one more example from the survey, okay? The Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths but is not literally true. That's a, that's a statement in the survey. Let me read it again. The Bible, like all sacred writings, so it's in the same category in this statement. The Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. In 2014, when they ran the survey with that statement, only 41% of Americans agreed with the statement. Less than half agreed with that statement. By 2018, 47% agreed with the statement. By 2022, 53% of Americans agreed. The Bible is no different than any other sacred writing. And really what it's filled with are helpful accounts of myths, ancient myths, but they are not literally true. You see the downslope? You see where we're headed? More of the reason for us next week to look at is the Bible reliable, okay? So, uh, the series is very important to deal with. And I hope to deal with the heavy-hitting questions on Sunday morning for the next few weeks between Sanctity of Life, which really will have a question as well, a tough, tough question, it's really part of the series, and next week, which is our missions, okay? So we're going to hit the heavy ones on Sunday mornings for the next few weeks, but we will also use Wednesday night Bible study to hit some of the questions that are less heavy hitting, but they are still very provocative, and we need to give answers to, okay? And in fact, some of you have turned in questions and most of those will be hit during that period of time. So you want to come on Wednesday nights at 6.30 uh, here starting this Wednesday night, and we'll address that. We're going to step away from 
our Second Kings series, verse by verse, and address this matter, okay? Now, did you know that there are even evangelical churches that have caved in on right biblical views? Did you have, did you have any clue of that? If, you had, if somebody had said, well, what do you think about the evangelical church? Many would go, well, that's, that's what I believe. I'm an evangelical. What evangelical meant 20 years ago isn't anything like what it means today. You don't have to hold to a belief that Jesus is the only way to God. You don't have to believe in the triune God to be an evangelical today. So that word evangelical needs to be thrown out the window. The, wor- the, the postmodern world has adopted that word. They've taken it in. They would say that they are evangelical in some church that doesn't even teach from the Bible. So we, we're not categorized in that. We shouldn't be. So I don't even know what the word is for us. Uh, weird. Uh, from the world's view, right? Aliens. Jesus said that you're an alien. Uh, in this world, but uh, we're not fitting even the evangelical crowd any longer. Um, So let's deal with today's question. Here it is. You might want to have a piece of paper and a pen handy to write down some passages and follow the points that I'm going to share. How can a loving God send people to hell? Go ahead and write that down. See, some people use this question as a reason why they can't believe in the God of the Bible. Uh, their end game is to reduce the Bible down to nothing more than a book of myths and fables, which is what we read in the survey. There are others who use this question as a weapon, okay? When they ask it, it's not because they want to understand a biblical, biblical answer. They're not looking for an answer. It's rhetorical to them, okay? Uh, they're using it to make a self-proclaimed statement. God's love would never allow masses of people to suffer torment in hell. That's what they're saying to you in the question. Okay? So there are evangelical churches that have uh, caved in, and and oftentimes Christians have caved in because they can't seem to give a good answer to the question. Now, before we can address the question with a biblical answer, we first need to define a few terms and correct a few wrong assumptions in that question. So let's break down the question. We're going to deconstruct it before we actually answer it in the proper way, okay? If you ask a question based upon false assumptions, there's no way that it's going to lead you to a right biblical answer. Let me say that again. If, you, if the foundation of the statement or the question has false assumptions, there's no way you'll find the right conclusion or the right answer. You, it, you can't, one can't lead to the other, Okay? And so this question is filled with false assumptions. Let me give you an example of a question that is built on false assumptions or a scenario. Let me give you an illustration of that, which can't possibly lead to a correct answer, okay? Think about a 10-year-old who is told by his parent to clean his room and do some basic chores before he or she goes out to play. And, And then they start moping around with a bad attitude as they do the chores They're hanging their shoulders, and with a victim voice, they turn to you and say, why do you hate me so? That's the question. Why do you hate me so? Um, False assumption. False assumption. 
The false assumption is that their parent hates them. That's how they start the question. Truth is, teaching your child to be responsible in their formative years is not an act of hate. It is an act of love. And I believe more parents should teach age-appropriate responsibility. I, I, I think it's not happening near enough for our kids. Now, when we hear the question, how can a loving God send people to hell, it's in the same line as what I just shared in that illustration. There's no way to come to a right conclusion when you start a question with false assumptions. So let's break down the false assumptions. Okay, here we go. How can a loving God send people to hell? Here's fallacy that is found in that, and we need to correct it. Number one, here it is. The first fallacy is how they use the term loving God. Loving God. What does the world mean when they use the term loving God in this question? To the world, it speaks of a completely non-confrontational, tolerant God who will let anybody do whatever they want to do. To them, that is a loving God. So the picture of that loving God, not the God of the Bible, but the God they've created, they can't see how that kind of a God would ever send anyone to hell. And if that false assumption is what you hold to, then we can understand why you'd come to misunderstand and be angry that God would allow people to go to hell. Okay? Now, 1 John 4.16, please turn. 1 John 4.16. To the world, it speaks of a completely non-confrontational being who tolerates anything we want to do. But if God sends people to hell, that is an unloving act. He's not really a loving God. So 1 John 4, 16, look what it says. So we have come to know and to believe. I think that's very important we recognize. We have come to do two things. One, to know. I understand God from the Bible. I, I now see the character and the nature of God up here. I, I understand it in my head. It has nothing to do with my experience. It has nothing to do with my feelings, my emotions. It's what I know to be true from the Word of God. And I believe. You know, faith comes in. I've, I've placed my trust in what I know from the Bible. And so he says... So we have come, we, who, who's, who are you speaking to? Christians. We have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. And here it is. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and, abide, and God abides in him. This passage tells us that God doesn't possess love as we do. He is the definition of love. And therefore, he cannot do anything that is unloving. So if God is love, not just does love, then there can be, never be a time when he is unloving. It's who he is. The world doesn't want to hear that. Take your Bible, just comes to my mind. Turn, turn to Roman, I'm sorry, John chapter 1. John chapter 1. 
John chapter 1. Look with me at verse 9. John 1 verse 9. The world doesn't want to hear that God, his nature, his character, his being is love. Okay? So John 1 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Listen now. Yet the world did not know him. They didn't believe, they didn't know the truth about God's character. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Who were his own people? The Jews. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. They were born of God. Go over to chapter 7, John chapter 7, verse 7. This is Jesus now speaking. Look what he declares. The world cannot hate you. Now, who's he speaking to? It's very important we understand this. He's speaking to his own brothers, his stepbrothers, his half-brothers. Okay? His half-brothers. He's not speaking to the church. There was no church at that time. He's not even speaking to his disciples who believe in him. These are his brothers, earthly brothers. The world cannot hate you, brothers, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Jesus is admitting, the world hates me. They don't hate you because you're in the world. You don't believe in me either. You're like the world. But the world hates me. Why? Because I declare that the world's deeds are evil. I declare total depravity. I declare that everybody is born into sin. They hate me for that. There again, there's the most hated doctrine in Christianity. Now turn to John chapter 8. Let's look at verse, I think, 41. Let me look and see. He has this marvelous experience in John 7.37 where he stands on the steps of the temple during the feast, I believe, of Tabernacle, which is when they celebrate how God provided for their forefathers for 40 years in the wilderness. And part of the ceremony at the end of the week was to bring large uh, vessels up the steps of the, to the temple mount. And then they would pour out the water from these large containers, these vats, on the steps, the stone steps. And the water would cascade down the steps. It was for, for uh, Israel, it was a picture of God bringing water out of the rock to sustain his people in the wilderness. We don't know at what point during that feast. We do know it's at the end of the week. We do know Jesus shows up at that feast. And he 
cries out. It's very possible. I'm not saying it's in the Bible. It doesn't say this. It's possible that he stood on the wet steps where they are seeing a picture of what God did for their forefathers way a long time ago. Water coming out of a rock. And he stands there and he cries out, If you're thirsty, come to me. The answer is not what I did for your forefathers. I'm here now in physical body. Come to me. He, he, he makes this, this statement. If anyone is thir one thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So it's not just knowing that I am God. Believing in me as God. Now he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And then it goes down further. And I want to read this part if I can find it here. Um, where Jesus addresses the Pharisees who are just, I mean, besides themselves. Well, I can't find it, but here's what he said. They said, who do you think you are? And, of course, Jesus told them, um, I know who you are. You are sons of your father. And your father was a murderer from the beginning. He is the father of lies. Now, he's saying this to the most respected religious leaders in Israel. Why did he say your father is a murderer? That's a direct response to John chapter 5, where they actually walked away after he healed the man, and they said, we've got to kill this guy. And he's calling them out and saying, your father was a murderer, and you're looking to do some murder too. That's how much the world hates Jesus. This idea in the church that somehow we have to change the doctrine of the, of the Bible or water down the Bible, Andy Stanley comes right in and tells you the, the Old Testament is not a helpful way to, to, to talk to lost people because it will cause them to stumble. Here's what he said. He said, you need to be sharing history from the world that Jesus was resurrected. In other words, not the 500 who saw him walking around after his resurrection share that Josephus, who wasn't a believer, spoke of the resurrection. Use the things in the world that the world can embrace. He does not believe in the Bible, literally, that in the first six days, God spoke the world into existence. Why? Because the world struggles with that. He actually said, in the end, religion's not going to win. Science will win. Did you know that science, the best science can do, is play catch-up to the Word of God? I didn't say catch-up, catch-up. 
It plays catch up with this. When you finally hear that they discovered this archaeological location and they found the name Caesar Augustus, and before that they just thought the Bible made the name up, and now all of a sudden it has a coin with his name on it, that's science trying to play catch up and not admitting it. This is the world we live in where the church, the evangelical church, has abandoned the Bible and has now tried to <coughs> simply take the parts of the Bible that they like and throw out everything else. By the way, Andy Stanley has one of the largest churches in America. He is celebrated by a lot of evangelical Christians, and his doctrine is false. You say, I can't believe you called him out by name. I can call a bunch of them out by name if you want me to. Not, be, not, be, not out of arrogance, not because we're better than them. We're not. We are just as lost as they are until Christ, by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, saves us. But as he saves us and he puts his word in us and he puts his spirit in us, he begins to lead us out of false assumptions and into the truth of the word of God. And when you see someone who's falling behind in that, you should go to them and you should say, hey, I'm concerned for you. Here's why I'm concerned. But I'm talking about a leader over the church who is influencing people away from the Bible. That is serious. That's nothing to be taken lightly. Any shepherd who loves the flock that God gave him to pastor would not withhold that kind of information from them. So, I know we're moving kind of slow, but let's just stay with me here because we're going somewhere. I don't know, maybe by 3 o'clock we'll get there. I don't know. If humans decide that God is somehow wrong to allow unrepentant sinners to pay their deserved penalty, then we have just declared that we are more loving than God is. That's what that statement says. And that means that we have set ourselves up as God's judge, God's jury, and in doing so have closed the door to deeper understanding. Therefore, the first step in answering this question is to agree with Scripture that God is love. Therefore, everything he does is an expression of that perfect love. That's the first fallacy that we've just dealt with. Now let's look at another one. The second fallacy presented by the question, how can a loving God send someone to hell, is found in the word send. The word send. The word send implies an action only on the part of the sender. The word sin implies an action only on the part of the sender. When you send something, let's say you're sending a Christmas card, the action of sending that card was done solely by you. After you put that card in the mail with a specific address on it, that card doesn't somewhere in route decide of its own, I think I'll go to this address instead. All the responsibility of sending that Christmas card is on you, okay? So this is where the fallacy comes into play with the word send in the question. They are saying that God did the sending, sending people to hell. He did it all by himself with no help. 
It was his choice alone, and therefore he isn't loving. When the truth is, their understanding of the nature of God is way off. The Bible teaches that just as God is sovereign, he also gives human beings freedom to participate in their life choices and eternal destination. While God is sovereign, while he has a calling on us, while he elects, while he predestines, the Bible also very clearly teaches of human responsibility. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So not everybody is going to hell. But it's not on God whether you go to hell or not. Let me read that again. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. He's a loving God. But in order that the world might be saved through him, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because God just hates you? No. You, by your actions, by your choices, are condemned. And God has foreknowledge. He knows before you're even born whether you'll ever be condemned or not. He knew from the foundation of the world. I read something on Facebook. Somebody got saved. I don't know the person, but this other individual was celebrating the salvation of, an, of a friend. How wonderful. And then they said this, now your name is written in the book of life. That's, that's a fallacy. That's not true. It was written in the book of life before the person was ever born. God already knew. So how can a loving God send people to hell? The entire question is wrong. A better wording of that question is this. Write it down, please, okay? So when, you, when you're talking to someone and they, they pose the question in the way that we've just looked at and deconstructed, here's what you want to say back. Would you allow me to say, if God is love, then why do some people go to hell? See, you, now you're using a correct assumption. God is love, and in light of that, why do some people go to hell? You've taken the word send out completely because that's just inaccurate. So here, let me give you some thoughts on that. If God is love, then why do some people go to hell? First, number one, people actively suppress the truth that can be known about God. They actively suppress the truth that can be known about God. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them. Plain to who? The ungodly. Plain to the world. Plain to every single human being on the earth that has not come to God. For there, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. God has given 
everybody enough understanding to look at the creation and know there has to be a creator. Okay? And then look at the next verse in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, the last sentence in verse 20. So they are without excuse. No human being on the earth has an excuse for not recognizing God as creator, someone greater than me. No human being on the earth is left, left to deduce that I have to be God because there's no other God. No, no. You're, you're suppressing truth that God has made known to you in order to think that way. There are several key points in this passage that give us glimpses into the heart of God. First is the fact that people actively suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This means that people have given enough truth, they've been given enough truth from God to know, to bow down, to come under this great creator. But they refuse to. It's the self-will in us that wants to deny God's right to tell us what to do. So with the truth in front of them, many people turn away and refuse to see it. Not a few people. The mass of humanity has turned away from the truth. They don't want to see it. It goes back to what I said to you in John 7. In John, uh, John 1 and John 7. And John 8. They turn to unrighteousness. That's how they suppress the truth. It's not just a determination to not see God in creation. It's replacing what can be known about God and what God has made known to them with a determination to not see God in creation. It's replacing what can be known about God with the worship of self. You, you flood the mind with unrighteousness. You flood your life with unrighteous living. I will do the opposite of seeing God in creation. I will worship self, or I will worship the things in the world, the mountains, the trees, the animals. That is a, that is a work of Satan, because Satan, neither could Satan ever create anything. All he can do is take what God has created and invert it, pervert it. That's why he tempted Eve. If you eat of this fruit, you'll become like God. Let me give you another, based on the right question. Here, here's a second point. God took the initiative to make his truth known to everyone. In Romans chapter 1, verse 19 that we looked at, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. History has proved this since, the time, since time began. As every people group on the earth has sought some understanding of a creator to whom they owe allegiance, such knowledge is an integral part of what, mean, what it means to be created in the image of God. God's initiative was to make his truth known to people so comprehensively that in Romans 1.20, he says, and if you don't believe it, you're without excuse. And to whom would they give such an excuse? 
if they tried to give an excuse? To God, the Creator, the same one who made himself known to them. God judges each of us according to the truth he's given us. And Romans 1 states that each have enough truth to know God rather than to walk away from him. You have no reason to walk away. You have no reason to deny. But to turn to him, to see him as God. This is the problem in the world. I don't want there to be a God over me. I will be God of my own life. Do you not see that in the world today? Do you not see that, I'm sorry, it's unfortunate, in our own families? You raise children to, to know God? And one child just said, I don't want that. If God is love, then why do some people go to hell? I think you know where we're going. The last point, we're about done. Thirdly, God is not only love. He is perfect justice. Do not think of God like you think of the American judicial system. Don't think of God like you do Congress, legislators, even the Supreme Court. Every one of those branches of government are absolutely capable of injustice and at times are unjust. God is nothing like that. Justice requires adequate payment for crimes committed. Are we seeing that happen in America today? No, because we have unjust legislators, unjust judges. And so they will take the innocent and discipline them, penalize them, and they'll take the unjust and set them free. Good becomes evil and evil becomes good. The Bible talked about that. This is no surprise. And the only just punishment for high treason against our perfect creator is eternal separation from God. Let me say that again. The only just punishment for high treason against creator, not believing in the creator, not accepting what he says about Jesus, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. The only just punishment for that type of behavior is separation from the one who is just, from the one who is holy, from the one who is love. That separation means the absence of goodness. It's the absence of light, the absence of relationship, the absence of joy, which are all facets of God's nature. And you chose it by rejecting Creator God. For God to, to just excuse uh, our sin and rebellion re would require Him to be less than a just God. To allow sin-stained humans into His perfect heaven would mean that the heaven is no longer perfect because you're there now and you never had to uh, ask forgiveness. You never had to bow down before God. Why would God ever put you in that setting of a perfect heaven? You can't. For him to do that would mean that he's no longer just. That's why only the perfect son of God could go to the cross in our place. When we see communion table and we come forward to take of the elements, the bread and the cup, I am so thankful that in our church, 
We had two crosses here, one on each table. Why? Because the bread alone doesn't give you the full picture of what communion means. And let me say this, the, the cup representing his blood alone does not give you the full picture of what communion means. Communion is not about the blood, and it's not about bread, his body. It is about the whole picture of God suffering the full weight of my sins and your sins on the cross. Whenever you see anything in the Bible that talks about the blood, the blood, the blood, some groups have taken that to mean they have power because of the blood. They'll claim the blood. That's, a, that's not a whole picture. They're misappropriating the word of God. Listen, it's not the blood. The blood's simply pointing to the cross. It's about the cross. There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Okay, there is power, but it's not the blood itself alone. Alone, it's the whole picture. It's the cross that Jesus shed his blood and died a sacrificial lamb on the cross. In heaven, in Revelation, it says that they couldn't open, John saw that they couldn't open the scroll, which really gave the title deed to the earth. It contained that. Nobody could open it. John is so moved by the fact that they can't open it, he starts weeping. And one of the elders in heaven reaches down, no, 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 look. And he looks up and he sees a lamb as if it were slain. He's seeing a lamb in heaven that's all bloodied. And that lamb is walking toward the scroll and opens the scroll. What does that mean? Jesus went to the cross. He paid the full price. He satisfied the penalty for sin that God demands as a just God, he satisfied it before Almighty God for us. Isn't that beautiful? Colossians 2.13 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and circumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside. Look, listen to this now in the verse. Last, last sentence. Nailing it to the cross. You were forgiven not just because of the blood. You're forgiven because of the work of Christ on the cross for you. No longer judged. No longer in contempt with God. Forgiven. Set free. That's something to get excited about, even though the world rejects it. When we refuse Jesus as our substitute, we must pay the price ourselves. That's why there are people on this earth, even though God is love, that's why people are going to hell. They have rejected taking on the price of their sin, believing that they're even sin, and not not seeing Jesus as their Savior. 
God gave us the freedom to choose and to choose how we respond to him. If he forced us to love him, we wouldn't be human. We'd be robots if he forced me to love him. To give us no option but obedience would be a violation of our free will. God gave you free will. Love is only love when it's voluntary. Remember that, parents. Love is only love when it's voluntary. We cannot love God unless we have the option of not loving him. Sometimes kids choose that. It's a season. They'll get over it. Keep praying for them. And because God honors our autonomy, he will never force our surrender. He will never force our loyalty. Because he's love. And he gave you a choice. However, there are consequences for either choice that you make. The consequence is you either choose God as God and believe upon Jesus Christ as the one who substituted for you on the cross. And if so, heaven is your eternal home. Or you choose yourself as God and you reject the God that has made himself known to you so much so that you're without excuse. And your eternal home is hell. God didn't do that. You did. C.S. Lewis summarizes this truth in his classic work, The Great Divorce. If you haven't read The Great Divorce, any of his works are great, but this really was a great book. There are only, two, he said, quote, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We have no hope without your word. We would be just like the world. It's being swept away in the wind. It's like a boat in the water with no rudder. We get to believe whatever we want, thinking that we're set free. I have the freedom to do whatever I want, not knowing that that, that False freedom actually leads to eternal bondage in hell, eternal suffering in hell, and we chose it. God, for those who might be watching by live stream and those who are in the room, I, I pray, Lord, that you would correct our thinking on this and that even as we come back next week to look at the reliability of Scripture, that you would bolster our faith, bolster our strength and our belief in the word of the living God. The Bible says heaven and earth will pass away, but the word will stand forever. And it's not just talking about our lifetime on this earth. It's talking about all eternity. The word of God will prove itself true because it is true. And so we thank you for this time. Speak to hearts, Lord. May people in this room today surrender, bow down, recognize you as creator God. And in doing so, believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, knowing that Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of our sins. But we have to recognize first that original sin exists. I am a sinner from birth. And I surrender to Jesus, who is the only one who can save me. There is no other world religion that can do that. Only Jesus can do that. We thank you. In Jesus' name, everybody said...
amen. God bless you, church. Elders and prayer partners will be up front for any prayer needs. By the way, let's remember Donna Bass, if we can. She's a member of our fellowship. She's in the, um, uh, the uh, ICU in Sebastian. Her, uh, she's had some real significant issues going on. They just took her uh, off of the intubation, but her, mentally she's not fully back yet. Let's pray for her recovery, okay? Thank you.